Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by my really good friend, Elizabeth Hoffman. She's Director of Congressional and Governmental Affairs. She's also a fellow here at CSIS. She's one of my favorite people at CSIS. I'm thrilled to have her on my podcast. Before joining CSIS, Elizabeth directed the National Endowment for Democracy's Government Relations Department, where she secured an additional $120 million in its annual congressional appropriations. Elizabeth moved to the NED after working extensively on the Hill as a senior professional staffer on the House Committee on Homeland Security, as well as for several other committees and congressional offices. She also worked at the George W. Bush Presidential Center, where she helped manage their Human Freedom Initiative. I'm podcasting Elizabeth today to discuss the congressional staffer delegation that she and I co-led to Ukraine, Moldova, and Poland. It was her idea, and she did all the organization. I just got to go along for the ride. But I think it was a really important staff delegation, and I think it has an importance on shaping U.S. policy in the region, and that's why I want to have her on today. So, Elizabeth, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dan. So can you tell us first a little bit about your background, and how did you get to become Director of Government Affairs at CSIS? And why is this that this is the thing that you wanted to do? Because you're really good at it, and I love working with you. Well, thank you. Well, as you noted, I worked on the Hill for a number of years, almost a decade, with a couple of breaks in between. And I am really passionate about policy and changing policy, particularly foreign policy, for the better. And I think CSIS has a unique reputation of being able to reach both sides of the aisle, which is important if you want to actually move forward policy and go beyond kind of political, just the political side of things. And I loved my work at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm very passionate about advancing democracy and freedom globally. But because that organization was federally funded, I really couldn't engage in policy work. And so that was an attraction to CSIS. And now at CSIS, I really see kind of my main mission is to help staff on Capitol Hill, help them. I mean, people are so busy. They're so inundated with information. So help them get the information they need, be able to do their job, staff their bosses, and make the best decisions for the country. That's amazing. So you had this idea. You came and said to me, Dan, do you want to join me in pulling together a staff delegation I thought it was a brilliant idea. You sold the idea and then knew all the sta- the right staffers. And then you put a ton of time into putting together a really amazing staff delegation and an amazing trip. Why was this trip important and why did you think this was important? Yeah, well, first of all, a lot of credit to you as well. You were critical in helping secure um, the funding and support needed to be able to pull this off. And we did it on a very tight timeline. I think we talked about this in June, maybe, and actually went to Ukraine, Poland, and Moldova in August, which is a pretty tight timeline to pull together a trip as complex as as this. I think the reason it was so important is that 
we are spending a lot of money in Ukraine. To date, Congress has appropriated $113 billion to help support this war effort. I think every penny of that is important, but it's also important for the decision makers, that's the members and the staff, to be able to go and see how that money is being spent to make sure it is having an impact. And unfortunately, right now, um, the State Department, due to concerns about the security situation in Ukraine, I think is taking an overly cautious approach about the travel that they will allow to Ukraine. To my knowledge, this was true when we went, and I'm not aware that it has changed since then. Members of Congress cannot spend the night in Ukraine. Staff are not allowed to go on staff delegations independent of members for traditional congressionally sponsored travel. And that's a huge, it's really hard to get to Ukraine, as we know now at this point. So that means members can kind of take the train in, do one or two meetings, and then leave. And staff don't have the opportunity to go. When you're spending $113 billion somewhere, I think it's really important to have a feel for what's happening on the ground, to have in-depth conversations, to meet with different people. We still got a small snapshot of that, but it was a lot better, I think, than what any kind of congressional staff delegation or members have been able to do up until this point. I agree. So without naming names, what are the profiles of the sorts of people that came on the trip? What did you think about when identifying the kinds of folks that you wanted to come on this trip? So we wanted it to be bipartisan, obviously. So we had an equal split. We took eight staffers, four Republicans and four Democrats. And we focused primarily on House offices. We did take staff from two Senate offices, but we focused primarily on House offices and on people whose bosses were influential, right? Could be whether that's through a formal leadership position, like a chair or ranking member of an important subcommittee, whether they be in kind of a leadership, a conference or caucus-wide leadership position, or if they're just somebody that kind of personally has the ear of a significant block of members, whether they may be in the Progressive Caucus, the Freedom Caucus, whatnot, that people respect and listen to. And so we targeted staff from those offices with the thought that, you know, their bosses will be particularly important in helping shape the the rhetoric and debate here on out. What did you want congressional staffers to understand about what was happening in Ukraine and Moldova? You talked about it's hard to get there. It's hard to get kind of firsthand information. And it was a kind of an odyssey to get there. I think we flew to Zhezhou. We was over the river. There was a little bit of an over the river and through the woods feel to some of the transport uh, or trains. It was a trains, planes, and automobile kind of a thing. What did you want them to get out of it? I wanted them to be able to talk to Ukrainians, to talk to the people in civil society leaders, to talk to government officials, to get a real sense for what's happening. And I also wanted people to see, we went to Bucha, we went to Irpin, where one of the biggest battles in the war happened, to Bucha, where obviously horrible massacre, atrocities were committed by the Russians to see that. And I don't think that sitting in Washington, it's really possible to get in the mindset of how Ukrainians are thinking, how they're feeling until you see some of those things. And again, really talk to them and just kind of see what, how are the average people on the street reacting? What is the sense 
kind of what is the mood? What's the feel when you go places? I mean, I walked away with some really, I think, important insights that I don't think I ever would have been able to glean just through Ukrainians coming here and having meetings. There is something about being there that's really, really insightful and important. What were some of your takeaways from Ukraine? A few things. One of the biggest things was how strong the resolve of the Ukrainian people really is to defeat Russia. Everyone we talked to, there was an overwhelming consensus that Ukrainians want to do what it takes to defeat Russia and defeat Russia decisively, that they are not interested in going to the negotiation table, that they feel like that's how they ended up where they are now, that after the first invasion in 2014, that there was a negotiation, Russia essentially controlled part of Ukraine, and that was a bridge to where they are now. Doing that again would be repeating a mistake of history. I think that's a very reasonable view. The question is, is the international community going to support the effort long enough for them to be able to do that? Because I do think they are committed to doing that. Some other takeaways, I mean, really the atrocities that the Russians committed, seeing that firsthand really does impact. You can, again, read about it from here, but seeing that is really, really impactful. And seeing kind of some of the horrors of what what happened was really impactful for me. And then the other thing is just, even though this is obviously a horrible time that Ukraine is going through, it's also a big opportunity in a lot of fronts. It's a big opportunity for Ukraine to kind of accelerate a lot of the reforms that they were undertaking before the full-scale invasion, be that on corruption, governance, court reform, all these things. I feel like a lot of Ukrainians are really motivated to take on those tough issues. They don't want to see corruption. They're sending brothers, sisters, friends, neighbors to go die on the front lines with Russians. They have no interest in padding the pockets of corrupt kleptocrats. So I think that there is an opportunity for Ukraine to really kind of advance and consolidate some of its democracy and democratic institutions in this time as well. Okay, I agree with that. What do you think the staffers took away from the part of the trip to Ukraine? I think a lot of the same things. I, you know, everything I've heard and the conversations I've had with folks afterwards really echoed kind of the same things. And really the need for the United States to stay in the fight. I think it was really valuable for them to see and talk to Ukrainians and understand the level of commitment. I mean, we had a couple of staffers who were veterans on the trip. They both kind of independently said, having had experience in war theaters, that they'd never experienced anything quite like that, like the commitment that they were hearing from Ukrainians about defeating Russia. And their experiences, mostly in the Middle East, you know, they hadn't had that same, they hadn't seen that same level level of motivation to kind of defeat the enemy that they saw in Ukraine. So I think they came away really convinced that Ukraine is capable and willing of doing that. I agree with that. What about Moldova? Talk about what were your takeaways from your visit to Moldova? Yeah, Moldova was really interesting. I think that Russia, I'm not sure that Putin understood exactly what the repercussions regionally would be of his invasion of Ukraine. But there really is a sense in Moldova that they're trying to turn away from Russia. They had been much more interlinked before the full-scale invasion. Now they seem very interested and motivated to kind of cut a lot of those ties to Russia, a lot of the dependencies 
they might have on Russia. You know, they've undertaken a number of reforms and efforts to really wean themselves off of Russian energy. I think they're seeing Russia as a threat in a way that they never did before. I think it's really turned Moldova towards the EU and towards the West, whereas before they were looking more towards Russia for the future. You sensed that there was a real pivot there, at least among those in Chisinau in the city center that they see the future with the EU and the West, not no longer with Russia. Yeah, I agree with you. That was sort of my takeaway, that they were ready to kind of have a different kind of relationship with Europe and the West. Clearly, the woman who is leading Moldova is a, a particular, a uniquely special person, Maya Sandu. And I think she's really the best leader we've ever had in Moldova. So she's somebody that deserves support. I think it's really encouraging. What was your takeaway from your visit to Poland? Yeah, so Poland was interesting. I think that I was extremely impressed with both the Polish government and Polish society and kind of what they have done to support Ukrainians. I mean, there's no question that Poland sees Russia as an aggressor, as an enemy. That was very, very clear. Again, we talked to people on both sides of the kind of political spectrum, and there was no daylight in between their perspectives on how they viewed Russia. I think they're very nervous about the prospect of a resurgent Russia and really do want to see Ukraine decisively defeat Putin. And again, the level of mobilization that the society as a whole has had to support Ukrainians, I can't remember the exact number of refugees they have in Poland now, but they've integrated them into the schools, into the workforce so seamlessly and so willingly. I think that's really, really impressive. And I think Poland deserves a lot of credit for kind of the steps that they have taken to do that. And when there's conversations about burden sharing, you know, you often hear Europeans aren't doing enough. Europeans aren't doing enough. I think that Poland is certainly doing its fair share and should be recognized and given credit kind of where credit is due for that, because maybe they're not contributing the same amount dollar for dollar in certain sectors. But again, kind of some of these societal costs that they're bearing are really significant. Yeah. No, I agree. I think we did an event here on burden sharing. And I think we need to understand here in the West that Europe is paying premium retail for their energy as they're breaking their addiction to Russian gas. And they're also hosting, I'm guessing, at least 3 million Ukrainian refugees, of which 2 million are in Poland. That's a burden that we don't have and that they're bearing. And so I was also struck by how welcoming and inclusive they were to Ukrainian refugees in Poland. So I thought that was particularly encouraging. I also got the sense that they are, Poland is really interested in beefing up its military. And I think they're going to look to have one of the strongest militaries in Europe. I think Ukraine will and so will Poland. What's the value of this? So I think why, why would a think tank organize a staff delegation? I think you talked about it earlier, but just some parting thoughts about what's the value of this? Why, why do think tanks engage in t- taking on this kind of effort and this kind of work? Why is, this, why is this important to the work that we do at a think tank? Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, especially in the absence of the opportunity for the government right now, our government is just not taking people there, which I think is really a shame and a mistake strategically. It's the job of members of Congress and their staff to to 
let their constituents know, let the American people know and understand why it's important for us to spend money in Ukraine. And it's really, really hard to do that if you haven't been there and you haven't talked to people and you haven't seen things with your own eyes to be able to come up with that messaging and to just say, oh, well, that's what the administration told me or, oh, that's what I'm hearing in my 30 minute meeting I had with some Ukrainians that passed through D.C. I think to be able to focus on that, I mean, this is one of the biggest kind of foreign policy moments of our time. I think it's just really critical that the level and depth of understanding on the Hill is there because they're the ones writing the checks. The administration can make whatever policy they want, but unless there's the funding to back it up, it's going to be hollow, particularly in this case. So I think it's important. And, you know, wars are long. Everybody's starting to get frustrated and antsy that, you know, this thing in Ukraine is dragging on. Well, I don't think that that should be particularly surprising to anyone, but we need to sustain attention and effort on this because, again, I think Russian aspirations are far larger than Ukraine. And so if we do not act decisively as the United States to help Ukraine take care of this problem now, we're going to have much bigger problems that are going to be much more expensive and cost a lot more money, a lot more taxpayer dollars, and heaven forbid, U.S military troops' lives, we don't want that. So we should invest now to save us the cost in the long term. But that's a hard proposition to make sometimes for politicians. They run on two-year, six-year cycles. So to the extent that we can help aid in the understanding of that, I think is really important. I agree. Elizabeth, thanks for your partnership. It's so great working with you. We're very fortunate to have you with us at CSIS. You're one of my favorite colleagues. So I really appreciate you coming on my podcast. And thanks for sharing your lessons learned today. Thank you, Dan. And thanks for joining on the trip. It was really great to have you and your partnership as well. I'm grateful. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 